Salam and welcome back everybody to our podcast, Unapologetic, The Third Narrative. Our original and authentic initiative in light of the war in Israel and Gaza. A platform where we will share our identities, views and experience from the ground. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of Unapologetic, The Third Narrative. This episode was recorded in collaboration with our friends and colleagues at the podcast of From the Yara River to the Mediterranean Sea. We truly enjoyed this conversation with our friends Itai and Hannah, the hosts, and thought it would be a good idea to show you, our beloved listeners, the dynamic between Ibrahim and I when we're having a deep and challenging conversation with a third party. We covered many challenging topics such as BDS, the right of resistance, is there a such thing as complete justice, and much more. So we hope you enjoy this twist, and without further ado, we pass the mics to our friends Itai and Hannah. Welcome to From the Yarra River to the Mediterranean Sea. You are joined as always by me. My name is Hannah. I'm joining you from Melbourne, also known as Nam in Australia. And you're also joined by Itai, who is in Jerusalem. Also known as Al-Quds and Yerushalayim. Before we start and introduce our amazing guests, I just want to acknowledge that I am recording this podcast on unceded Wurundjeri land, and I pay my deepest respects to elders past and present. This was and always will be Aboriginal land. We're so honored to have two special guests with us today. They are the hosts of the very popular podcast, Unapologetic, The Third Narrative. We welcome Ibrahim from Nazareth and Amira Muhammad, who's originally from East Jerusalem. Welcome to the podcast, friends. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us. It's our honor, really. (laughs) So do you want to tell us a little bit about how you started your podcast, Unapologetic, The Third Narrative, when you started it, um, why you started it, and how it's going? Sure. So we, we started the podcast... The idea that we we flirted with the idea of starting some sort of Palestinian Arab led initiative prior to October the 7th and prior to the to the war. But we were like we were thinking about what language should it be? What who's the target audience? Should it be political? Should it be social? What what do we want to talk about? Like, um, what do we want to uh, like? What what's the the thing that we want to seize? What's the topic that we want to seize? And then uh, obviously October the seventh happened, and uh, then the war broke out, and we started seeing like we just felt the the the, the pain of both sides, and uh, we're both uh, we're both activists. We're both that this is what we have devoted our lives to be, and when an activist or any change maker. Uh, sees that during this time, this such a crucial time where everyone, where you're supposed to do something and you feel so hopeless, you just feel useless. Like you, everything that you wanted to do, you you can't and you're not doing. Um, so there was this sense of, of hopelessness. And then within the first week, I get a call from Ibrahim and Ibrahim tells me the podcast, we're doing it now. What are we recording? Are you in? And I said, yes. And then we, we recorded within the next, like the same week and it was launched like the second week of the war so that's basically 
how it's doing, it's doing great. The podcast is thankfully we would have wished it to be in because of other circumstances, but it's doing really, really well. The conversation that we're honored to, the discourse that we're honored to um to invite is we have we can't deny the negative. There's a lot of negative, but it the positive outweighs all all the hate. Um and there's a lot of nuanced conversations that that are happening on our platform. So it it's great. Just on, on what you said, Amira, about nuanced conversations, you know, generally the nature of Instagram and pretty much all social media is that people get fed often very one-sided, highly polarized uh, content and content that shows nuance as your podcast does and I hope ours does too, very rarely goes viral. So you've seemed to have found the secret source to make um, nuance um, go go not viral, but, you know, like very popular. What's what's the secret to that? Secret. I think, you know, we're still honestly trying to figure it out ourselves because it's very uh, challenging work to always try to figure out, you know, what you want to share in a, you know, in under one minute. You know, Instagram limits you very much in these things. And I, I still do believe that, you know, if if our podcast was one-sided to one or the other, it would have gotten much more exposure in that sense that uh, social media still tries to uh, give voices for one-sided opinions, and the more radical opinion you have, you get more exposure, unfortunately. But we're trying to combat mm. that, and what we've been doing has only been very organic, and I think that's the main pride that we take uh, from the exposure that we got. It's it's not also surprising that we got most exposure in uh, the international community. I mean, at the beginning, mm-hmm. the idea, uh, and as Amira said, we started very early on in the war. So it was too early to speak to the Israelis and the Palestinians at that time. The, the wound was still too fresh. So we needed to have what we decided to do also by looking at what's happening in the world uh, to talk to the international community first. And there were two main reasons for that. I mean, one, that we saw the, um, the importance and the interest there is in the world in the, this conflict. The power that they do have uh, to push for what we hope to be the end of the conflict. But unfortunately, the voices have been going towards supporting one side over the other. And it's either you're supportive of the Israelis or the Palestinians, and it's a very... Um, uh, polarized view of the of the conflict these are basically what we saw as the two main narratives and this is why we are unapologetic and we're bringing the third narrative uh, which is a place where you can be pro-israeli and pro-palestinian where you can be pro-palestinian but still show empathy to the israelis and be pro-israeli and still show empathy to the palestinians it's not an either or situation it should not be the case and the other thing is that we're seeing you know a rise of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia in, in the West, particularly at the beginning of the war. So we wanted to also talk about that, that it's not only affecting us, it start, this our conflict starting to affect you as well, and in a negative way. And what we wanted is for people to be in a place where we hope to see, you know, joint Israeli-Palestinian protests calling for the end of not just the war, but the entire conflict which is one of our main messages that we're trying to bring out there. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I really love what you're trying to do. And I guess we're trying to do that as well. And I want to touch on something that you said before, 
that the fact that you said that you're receiving criticism. And I want to talk a little bit about that because it's so interesting to me that you are receiving criticism. We've also received some criticism, mostly from Jews. So we got one email from someone who it was mostly directed directed at me saying, you know, <laughs> I'm a I'm a Jew. I can't believe you're speaking like this. You care more about Palestinians than you do about your own people. It's you know, you need to have some empathy for your own side and like I, I kind of like that criticism. I think that it means that our our podcast is challenging people, and and also I just don't think that it's true that I care about anyone more than anyone. I just care about people. So I'm interested to hear about the criticism criticism you receive. Is it from Palestinians, like you know, from that side, or who who is the criticism from? Wow, from across the map. We are. We are Zionists, Zionist loving, anti anti Semitic, <laughs> uh, pro Palestinian, pro Israeli, anti Palestinian, anti Israeli people. <laughs> and we get criticism from every single person because one, we're bringing, we're hosting people from different that we don't even agree with. Um, we are uh, talking about realities that people don't wanna don't wanna look at. We are using terminology that people don't believe in, and we're dissecting it talking about where it came from all through all all the while focusing on the end goal which is ending the entire conflict as a whole so we have jews that don't like us or not don't like us but like support us however have uh have criticism for us we have palestinians that uh, follow us support us yet comment uh like back and forth with uh, back and forth with uh, with israelis on what they think um in our comment section on our instagram um but that's good if you're if you're talking to people if you're in a room where everyone has the same opinion and they're all like nodding their heads to, to the statement that you're making you're in the wrong room so an echo chamber yeah except that we're nodding our heads now to you speaking so but we're right we're in the right <laughs> room, but it's the who are in the wrong room <laughs> yeah um i want to ask a hard question because you know good to ask hard questions Go for it. um just have a second. Look at the thing I just sent you on Instagram. Uh, on uh, sorry, on WhatsApp. Okay. So at a at a pro Palestinian rally in London this week, there was a photo that went very viral online with uh, a Muslim woman wearing a hijab, and she's holding up a sign with the colors of the Palestinian flag, and it says, "You don't get to choose how we resist." And then in response to that, Elon Levy, who is the spokesperson of the Israeli prime minister, shared that image and said, and you don't get to choose how we respond. And um, I have a lot to say about both that image and the tweet in response from Elon Levy. But I wanted to ask you, Amir and Ibrahim, about choices. We, you know, we all have choices and and this, this post seems to present a, bi- a binary that there's only one choice of how to resist and how to respond. So you've just seen this image now for the first time. What's your response to seeing it? Um, honestly, it uh, kind of shook me a little bit, I have to say. Just because also it... Okay, there are a couple things. Um, one, it's hard for me to see the writing with the blood especially knowing how the details of what happened on the 7th specifically. And also from talking to a friend only recently about the unedited video and the horrors that she saw 
and it's tough for me to see the also the stains of blood on the Palestinian flag because it, it, it in my view of what a Palestinian is and we can talk about identity as well later on but for me as a Palestinian also choosing or dictating that this is what a Palestinian is that it's a political you know or a struggle or a violent struggle only is is unacceptable for me personally um because you know i see a palestinianhood as as a peoplehood uh, first and foremost and not as you know a, a political struggle it's before the political struggle there are there is a peoplehood and you know i've been talking to gazans recently people who are still there and people who are still suffering and you know, um, where is that person from, by the way? Because that person is not from Gaza. It's a photo from London, but I don't, I don't know where she's originally from. Yeah. So yeah. So in, in general, you know, it's it's easy to say these things when you're not on the ground. I can assure you that the majority of Gazans who are sitting in the mud in you know uh, destroyed tents or you know uh, trying to get some water or food and getting bombarded on the way, they're not sitting around thinking, oh, what a great attack we had on October 7th. I'm really glad Hamas did this. No, I'm sure there are some people who do, but to think that the majority does it and to think that this is what the Gazans want, you're not in Gaza, so you cannot tell the Gazans what they want and what they should. The Gazans, the most heartbreaking thing about it is that the Palestinian case is being politicized into a point where the Gazans are asked to be sacrificed and killed in the name of this war, and that they should continue to resist and fight, and that this is the only way that they should take, while the people who are asking them to do it are not, are not participating in this fight. They're only telling the Gazans to fight, and they're only telling the Gazans to die. Not while they're taking a part of it, of it themselves, and and this is the most uh, absurd, like heartbreaking thing for me. Like it's regardless of the like this is how we respond. This is a whole different case. But you know, first and foremost, I'm looking at my own uh, people and my own uh, people's suffering and how it's being politicized in the world, especially in the Muslim and the Arab mm -hmm. world, that a Gazan is the sacrifice for the sake of the Palestinian cause that it became the world's cause without the world intervening much in it. And that's unfair. And mm. it's that's a really interesting point that, that people, you know, they get to have a say, but they're not intervening. No one's doing anything really about it except for holding signs and telling Palestinians how they should resist. That's a very interesting point. Really powerful. No, I know of a couple of Gazans who got their families out and people in the Arab world are telling them that that's a treason. Like, how, how dare you to tell them that, you know? Or when we had Palestinians who were criticizing from inside Gaza, Hamas, or saying we don't want the war, or saying we want to find peace, and people in the Arab world telling them that they shouldn't be saying these things. If the people in Gaza are getting desperate, that's their feelings. You cannot take, them, cannot take it away from them. And you cannot only decide mm -hmm. that only certain voices from Gaza need to be heard. This is what we're seeing, uh, unfortunately. And uh, there is a frustration from that, absolutely. I'll, I'll tell you my take on it. So I, I'm not a historian. I'm not a politician. I am not, I'm just a simple, I'm a simple woman 
that lives and has uh, suffered uh, tremendously from the the status quo uh, of the of the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, and I think instead of hearing from politicians and from and from historians of what is right and what is not right, and regardless of the of the uh, of the narrative that you're fed, I'm going to present the narrative that I was fed. That Jews came here as a result for, of the Holocaust, and we uh, in the to the to the Arab world, um, and we uh, present like we took them in with open with open arms, and as a result, they uh, decided to colonize and take our land. And how they took our land is by force, and they uh, basically um, killed us, took uh, took our land, kicked us out, um, and the Arab world left us stranded that's 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 the narrative i don't it doesn't it what i'm about to say doesn't interest me or the or the, the person listening if they believe this is true or not however this is this is the narrative that i know this is what my ancestors went through same thing in the arab world this is what this is what and actually i'm not going to talk about the arab world i want to talk about here this is what this is what the, the narrative that i have been fed now if you ask me back then Yes, you don't have the like if that if that is the narrative, and you ask, and I think it is it is valid to say you don't you don't have a say in how I resist if I'm being attacked. If that's the narrative that I'm being attacked, my home is being taken, and my family is being killed, you don't get to because I'm being attacked. You don't get to talk. You don't get to tell me how I get to resist and that I need to resist resist peacefully. However, we're talking in 2024, and uh, I like to look into the future and what we need to remember that if this person is a palestinian um and i don't know if this this uh, hijabi woman is a palestinian she must have she must have a a story her her ancestors why is she in london there's a reason why she's in london i don't think that her grandparents or ancestors were like you know, I like the climate in London. I'm gonna go there. <laughs> no one likes the climate. We're gonna in London. <laughs> we're gonna stay and build and build a life for us there. There's for sure a story. She's somewhere. She has ties to the land. That's if she's Palestinian, and that's where the narrative comes from. She's still talking the language of her ancestors because she's not here. She doesn't know. She's not in Gaza. She didn't suffer the now. She doesn't know what the now is and what the repercussions of what she's talking about is. Uh, so she's talking the language of her of her grandfather and her grandmother. That's what she's speaking. Now, part of the reason why we're doing what we're doing is to to raise awareness of what the now is and what's going on right now and what the repercussions of the language that's being used in the West has to do with the reality on the ground for the Palestinians that are here that are suffering continuously day after day, whether that's in Gaza, East Jerusalem, inside of Israel or the West Bank. Uh, that's different. There is a suffering to the diaspora Palestinians, and I'm not talking about the refugees because that's an entire different conversation. There, they like there. There needs to be a, a light that's shed on the, all the experience of the different types of Palestinians that are out there that suffer in different ways. So, and and to the response, it's also uh, like you don't get to 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 tell us how we respond. Um, there's also a narrative that's been fed there. That this is the land of our ancestors and we came back here and we've been uh kicked out of everywhere including the the arab the arab countries that we uh that we that we were in um so there's also a narrative there so we need to understand like i can't lie and tell you that that 
the photo that you told me didn't trigger me. No, it triggered me a lot. Um, but we need we need to understand. We need to take a breath. That's why I didn't answer. I didn't fight to answer first because we need <laughs> to actually analyze why am I feeling what I'm feeling? Why does this trigger me? Why did they use that language? Because this podcast, that poster isn't going to free Palestine. It's not going and that response isn't going to bring justice to the Jewish people and to Israelis and to bring back the people that we've lost on the 7th of October. It's not. It's self-expression. And we need to like kind of look at it from a philosophical way and not take it, not take it to heart because it's not it's not feeding a Gazan and it's not bringing back a hostage. I just I, I so appreciate those those two responses and the honesty. And I know maybe it was a bit confronting for me to send that to you without warning, but I, I did want to, I, I wanted your sort of reaction on the spot to it because I was really shocked when I, when I first saw it as well. I saw it about a week ago and I saved it on my camera rolls, especially because I wanted to talk to you about it because I have spoken to so many Israelis over since October 7th and about what's happening in Gaza. And everyone says to me, what did they expect? What, what was Hamas thinking when they did October 7th? Like, of course we were going to respond that way. They knew we were going to respond that way. They want us to respond that way. And and it's this kind of thinking. And every time I suggest, like, other ways that Israel could have responded to October 7th, let's say with a hostage deal in the first week or with, you know, other other options, you know, et cetera, a land for all and, you know, all of these sorts of things, they go, no, no, but we did, we only had one way to respond. And... Um, and then we see what that looks like in Gaza and the horror of that and and the, the displaced people and so many houses destroyed. And and I think there's this there's this sense that I think so many Israelis feel like we only have one choice. And the only choice we have is to fight. And then as that as that woman holding the sign says, our only choice is to resist. And I feel like the majority of the country between the river and the sea feels like that there's only one choice um, and that all other choices are either not on the table or are delegitimized or you're a traitor if you, you know, portray those other choices. And I don't know, I feel like as, a, as an Israeli Jew in the so-called peace camp or what's left in it, it's so hard to say to people like Elon Levy is the spokesperson for the prime minister, like there is another choice, like that's not what you have to do. But um, it's, it's a, I constantly feel like I'm having a losing argument mm -hmm. um, there. And then I see all this suffering and destruction around me. And, and, you know, as an Israeli, you know, I've gone to funerals already of soldiers killed. I've seen women at home who's Husbands have been at war now for two, three months and are raising three children by themselves. And there was just a news report today that Israel is going to extend the days of um, compulsory uh, milliwim of like uh, army service that Israelis have to do. And, to, and you know, and, and now the debate in Israel is over, well, Haredim should do more days than, you know, the secular people. But I'm like, why isn't the argument over why do we only see military solutions as the only way to move forward? Like, why isn't that the focus of discussion rather than who should do more army service? It should be, how do we reduce army service for everyone? And I just feel like there's only one choice. And I think to me, I just want to like comment on that sad. word. On hmm. I want to comment on that word, on the, the choice. I think it's the only thing that 
I wouldn't use the word choice because I think there's there's no such thing as it's the only choice. It's what Israel has chosen to do. There were many right. ways that it could have responded. Um, whether that's not to respond militarily, whether that's through diplomacy, yada, yada, like there's many, but it's, I think what we need to ask ourselves is what do we want? What do we want? It's not like uh, most of the, the questions that I see with with interviewers and reporters is uh, what would have been uh, like two Palestinians is what would have been a uh what's the word uh a reasonable kind of like response a, a reasonable response what would have been a reasonable response to the 7th of october is it about reasonable or is it an, is it about like for example like retrieving the hostages does israel's response actually retrieve the hostage which hostages which is what should be the first first and foremost concern of uh of israel and of the israeli citizens and that's should that's what it should be Correct me if if it if it isn't. I think it is. Like looking at the protests, looking at the, at the multiple op-eds that we're reading. Uh, so I think that's the question. I think that's the question. Is this response going to return the hostages or bring bring back the people that were taken taken by Hamas? Now, if you ans- if you ask the question the in this way, which is does uh is what israel's doing kind of redeem and feed the sense of the sense of revenge that uh that israel and the idf the embarrassment of the 7th of october because put aside the brutalities and the the, mm. the blood that was shed it also it's also a military uh a military embarrassment that yeah. happened so Let's look at what, like, that's how we need to look at it. We can't keep on looking at it on a governmental and military level. We need to look at it as um, what are we going to get out of what's going on? What's going to happen? Because this isn't going to bring security. This is Mm. not going to bring security. And we've seen time and time again, yes, this is the most brutal war we've seen, at least me in my lifetime. Um, And this isn't going to bring security because we see and we've seen from around the world Violence doesn't eliminate violence. It creates more of it. So mm. uh, I think that there were many chances. Is it like many choices? Is it right? Was was is it the right choice? Is it the wrong choice? Um, could the like what could have what? Could, I think the question is what could have Israel done in order to um, bring back the hostages? I think the main is the main thing. I think, though, one of the questions that isn't asked is, and I find it interesting when people say, you know, what did Hamas expect Israel to do? But I also, and and this is what I did ask after October 7th, and I said it in one of the early episodes, I thought, like, what did Israel expect Palestinians in Gaza to do? Like, that is, you know, I feel like people talk about this war as if it started on October 7th. And I see that everywhere. This war started on October 7th and Hamas did this and Israel is responding. But I don't really see it that way. I see it as Israel has been uh, occupying parts of Israel for 75 years, the West Bank, East Jerusalem. There's been a siege on Gaza for the last 16 years. Like, what do you expect people to do when they don't have freedom? What do you expect when people are put in a strip and there's, you know, checks on what goes in and what goes out? What do you expect people to do? And I, you know, the the picture of, you know, you can't judge how we resist or don't tell us how to resist. Like, I, I do think it's an interesting question because I don't, 
think that the way Hamas chose to resist was okay. Like violence, like what you just said, Amira, violence against violence is never the answer. But I do, like there is just this part of me that is thinking, you know, there have been movements before October 7th, you know, the BDS movement, and and I want to talk about that later and, and your thoughts on that, but there has been people resisting peacefully for so many years and the world said nothing. It's just continued this occupation. And after October 7th, like it's not justified at all. It's not. But the world is talking about it now. And I struggle with that. Like I struggle with the fact that people are looking at this now and it's it's happened because of the 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 horrors that we saw on October 7th. So I'm interested in your thoughts about this. Okay, can I comment on that? Because Please. here's the thing. Um, yes, the the world has uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, is focused on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict again. And it's, you know, quote unquote, because of what happened on the 7th. But, you know, it's not the first time that the world shifts its eyes on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or on um, a- any war that happens within this context. It, it happens time and time again. It's the problem is that every round, in a way, that ends, the world forgets about it again. And we've gone through so many times that we've seen horrors that are happening in the war, and then the world is very involved, and then you know a period ends, and then the world forgets about it until the next war. And I think this is part of what, why we use the terminology of ending the entire conflict, not just the war, because if we end just the war, we'll have another war later. And what did we achieve by that? Uh, there are a few problems, I think, in, in, that have led us to the place where we are today. And I think it's looking at it from, from a much more broader uh, perspective. One is that, uh, obviously, there, there was the problem of uh, Hamas uh, and the conflict that happened in 2006 and seven, and Hamas taking control over Gaza Strip and all these things. But the problem was much earlier than that, in my opinion, was it's just the ongoing continuation of the conflict for so long. This is the problem. And even after uh, the siege on Gaza, uh, the people who were in the peace camp talked about, you know, how uh, uh, the, the repercussions of that siege will be on the long term. And like the questions that you raised in terms of, you know, what do you expect from a child in Gaza to be born under a siege, knowing that, you know, who the, the person that is responsible for, for putting him under siege is the one on the other side of that wall. It's Israel. And if you have a Hamas, uh, you know, radical ideology already breeding and, and, and gaining strength year by year there without any influence on it, quite the contrary, being just strengthened, what how how can we expect something else to, to happen? But... The problem was that at that time, the voices were calling for peace were not calling for urgency. And I think, unfortunately, we reached to a catastrophe before we decided that we need to call for urgency. And we didn't do that in the past 16 years of, um, of the siege on Gaza. And we had three, uh, three or four military operations there, and it wasn't still urgency. And the other side of the problem is the continuation of the conflict from the world. You know, you're saying that the world has been looking at the conflict not ending, but I think the world is is a major part of why the conflict continues to happen. Because again, that sense of urgency that things need to end. In one side, you have a corrupt Palestinian authority. The world knows it's corrupt. It's getting support from the world. 
and it's getting economic support from the world without any checks and balances, without any limits. And they are damaging the Palestinian people. Every person in the West Bank who is not affiliated with the Palestinian Authority will tell you that. But they continue to be supported unchecked without any um, limitations. The same holds truth for Israel, and the American support is also unconditional. Uh, the United States have always, you know, showing us the, the statements against uh, the, the settlements and all these things, but the settlements have been continuing to expand for so long, and the U.S. continues to support Israel for, without any, any repercussions for the expansions of the settlements. You know, condemnation statements just don't do anything. And if, if the world thinks it's going to trick us by just saying, mm. oh, we condemn this and we condemn that, that's not helping us on the ground at all because you're continuing the support and you're not changing the reality. No one has called for a true change to this reality and that's what needs to happen. Yeah, I, I, I think that a lot of the protests going on around the world for the pro-Palestine movement are, you know, I think a lot of them aren't actually for, some of it is for the people in Gaza, but at least from my understanding, it's aimed at, you know, in Australia, it's aimed at the government in Australia. The The protests in London are aimed at the government in, in England, same as in America. I think that's kind of what it's for, you know, I think. Like, when when this whole thing started and I saw a lot of protests coming up, I was like, why are people so obsessed with this war? Like, if you're not Jewish and you're not Palestinian, like, why? I don't understand why you're, you're doing this. Like, why do you have such a say in it? And when I started asking people, like my non-Jewish friends, white Australians, like, why are you going to these protests? They're saying, because our governments are supporting it. Our governments are not calling for a ceasefire. Our governments, especially in America, are funding Israel to keep this war going. And I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Like I can, I understand why people who don't, you know, have a stake in quotation marks want to have their voices heard because they're, yeah, their governments are directly involved in this conflict. There's, you know, there's two wars going on. There's one between the Israelis and Palestinians in the actual area. And then it's also like a much bigger global war between, you know, the West and, and the Middle like East. This is kind of why we hope to bring that different message of, you know, instead of talking to your government over whether or not it should support this war, let's talk about your government pushing for mm. a real end to the conflict. Where is your government's stake in, in pursuing a real end to the conflict and in, in, in calling for that urgency that things need to change now? That's what we hope to see. Talking about alternatives, last Friday I was at the Standing Together um, conference in Haifa, that's the Purple Movement, those that aren't familiar what I'm talking about, and uh, they had over a thousand uh, people, mostly Jews, but also you know a fair amount of, of Arab and Palestinian citizens of Israel as well, gathered to talk about the day after the war. Ma'ozi um, Non spoke there, he was a guest on episode six of the podcast, and many other leaders from uh, the peace movement I guess, challenging people to think differently. Um, and I know they're one of many um, organizations that are part of OLMEP and in the peace movement in Israel. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on, I guess, organizations like Standing Together that sort of focus on Jewish-Arab solidarity. Do you think they're effective or are they just like a drop in the in a teacup? Um, so... Uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big, uh, I don't want to say fan, but I'm a big supporter of uh, standing, uh, of standing together. The purple movement uh, isn't also, is not something that came about in result to, like, as a result of the war. 
They started in 2016. Yes, yeah. they are a years long, uh, like relatively new. It's 2016. It's not like they're here from like 2001, but um, they are relatively fresh voice. And they have been accumulating is not so like supporters and they've built a, a reputation for themselves. Like it's they have been trying to implement change in, in, in many ways. And we've seen them a lot during the protests that prior to October the 7th, the protests against the current government, the current Israeli government. We see we've seen them a lot. I personally, the first time that I protested in something spontaneously was during the the pogrom, the attack on Fawara in the West Bank. For those who don't know, I don't remember the, the month, but last year there was an attack by, by settlers and they burned down the city of Fawara in the West Bank and uh, there were a few casualties and people injured. Uh, and that's when like I I was like, I, I felt like I needed to do something and they held a spontaneous um, protest and I hit the street with them and there like were hundreds and hundreds of people and so they it's like they're not just uh, a factor that plays within the current war ending it not ending it bringing people together they're a big factor that is in my opinion will will waver when it comes to the integration of not just integration but the inclusion of a joint uh, youthful Jewish and Arab Israeli uh, pol political party. I think. I think that's the aim of them. And so uh, I think like any any voice of unity should be empowered. But like one statement, like a lot of statements that we hear from our from our followers is that I don't really agree with you. You trigger me a lot. Unapologetic is a little too unapologetic for me. But I think you're a voice that I should support. And that's also what I think of all voices of unity, voices that bring highlight Palestinian and, and Israeli joint work uh, should should be highlighted. Even if like there are some things where I'm like I'm iffy about and I don't agree with, uh, they are a force of good and I shouldn't be like I don't think anyone should be focused on putting them down when they do so much good. So we're seeing them now, um, the BDS movement, the boycott, divest, sanctions movement. Um, they're, boycott, they're, they're urging people to boycott standing together. I want to know what you think about the BDS movement in general and also now that they're calling to boycott standing together. Ibrahim has a big uh, comment on this. Uh, I know it. I know it personally. Both me and him, when it comes to boycotting, we don't really we don't really align in, in in the view. And some things we do, but generally we have our specific frustrations with uh, with it. Ibrahim, do you wanna do you wanna rant? <laughs> do you wanna I mean, start? I know that I would <laughs> rant on this topic a bit, just because of my personal frustrations. No, rightfully so. So, and you know, in a very general way, I understand boycotts. I understand, um, you know, using your economic power to express feelings on one person or one group or state. That I understand in of itself, because you see it on, you know, pushing for uh, boycotts, for instance, from the settlements uh, as a political act. Uh, we see it in the West. But actually, I also see it here in Israel, funnily enough, uh, from Jewish friends who, for instance, don't buy any German products. It's a personal statement for them mm. that I don't support German products. I don't. I know they're the best, but I still don't want to buy them. And that in of itself is understood. 
Uh, my problem with the BDS movement is not is that it's not just a movement that calls for a boycott of products that come from the settlements or that come from Israel. They call for a much uh, broader uh, boycott that includes boycott of conversation, that includes boycott of uh, discussion, discourse, uh, that include boycott of peacefully ending the conflict. I think the BDS movement is very clear on a one-state view, in my opinion. And it's using, even when it's not using physical violence, it still uses violence in order to prevent the things from happening in Israel. One example, or a couple short examples. One, a, a few years back, uh, the, um, the Argentinian national team was going to come to uh, Israel, and there was a lot of controversy because the, um, the, the minister of sport, who, by the way, should not even be a minister of sport, that's a whole different other conversation, Miri Regev, she's also very radical herself, in my view, and she wanted, instead of making the game in Tel Aviv, she wanted it in Jerusalem, and that's already a very political choice of her, which is, you know, a lot of people in the sports industry criticized her decision and turning politics to it, to the conversation. But even so, uh, the, the BDS's attempt was not just also to, to about the Jerusalem aspect, but in general about the Argentinian uh, national team coming here, and also like the way that they used uh, their kind of like attempt to push the national team from coming is by, you know, posting uh, uh, pictures of uh, Messi with uh, with blood stained all over his shirt, you know, instead of contacting and talking mm. in a different way and reaching out to the Argentinian government. it's That usage is, is very uh, aggressive, too aggressive, in my opinion, and it doesn't do good for, in, in my perspective, because then it shows the Argentinians that this is the language that we are also speaking. The language of intimidation, the language of using uh, violence in order to to push for our voice to be heard, and it doesn't need to be necessarily the case. The other example when when, when the Eurovision happened in uh, in Israel, uh, the, the 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 singing contest between the you know the European nations, and basically there was an attempt also by the BDS to uh, prevent uh, people from coming to see the 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 Eurovision. But what's funnily enough, in the same time, mm. I was looking at, you know, uh, pu uh, pushes and commercials from hotels from Ramallah and Beit Lahim in the West Bank, uh, you know, called doing deals for people because it's the Eurovision. And one, the there are not enough hotels in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. And two, the, the hotels in the West Bank are much cheaper. And guess what? The, 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 the Palestinian hotels were not, you know, screening the people entering uh, their hotel and saying, do you have a ticket to the to the Eurovision? Because if so, we're not going to let you in. The Palestinians also need e economic support. They need to, to flourish their economy. They were looking to host these people, not turning them away. And by telling the, the, the Europeans not to come, you're also damaging Palestinian economy. So only boycott without bringing mm. other solutions that help Palestinians physically on the ground is just not good enough, in my opinion. And I'm just personally uh, uh, do not support boycott that leads to uh, radicalism. And that's what we're seeing, that it's it's preventing even voices like Standing Together that has one of the only organizations that has two CEOs, one Israeli and one Palestinian. Like that's a, that's a point of pride and not a thing to turn against. And the BDS clearly does not want peace. It wants a one state 
perspective and it's a it's a Palestinian uh, state and that's their view I do not support it because we see here that looking for war will only give us more devastation and actually more wars have led to two things for Palestinians who actually live here limitation of less and less rights and less and less land how much do they want uh, the people who are out there in the world to for us to continue to shrinking in size in land and in rights while telling us to continue fighting on it's a very powerful answer what are your thoughts on the bds <laughs> i i um, i think it's interesting because i feel like i don't really get to have a say on it because i want to know what palestinians think about it like that that's why i was really interested in hearing what you guys think because is it that's actually a good way helping? of getting like, out of the question no no i'm being serious like i i i've been torn about it because there are now people doing it in australia like there's like heaps of boycotting um jewish businesses that have any you know like zionist ties um and like one of my really close friends has a, a shoe business and they were targeted by activists in melbourne and their business has never said anything about where, what their position is on this conflict they've never had they've never given money or done you know like a giveaway or anything to suggest that any money goes to israel um but because they're from a jewish family and the family has um you know the the their parents have like ties to a family that has in the past given money to Israel, people are now boycotting that business. And I was like, I think this is crazy. Like this is, this is really crazy. Like the, I can, I can understand why you would try and boycott things that directly influence settlements in, in the West Bank. Like I can understand that. And, and my general understanding of boycotts is is from really what happened with apartheid in South Africa like apartheid ended in South Africa because people started boycotting so I can I can see why they are useful and have had an impact in the past but when it's like targeting Jews in Melbourne like what is that doing for the people in Gaza I just I'm not really sure the connection there I, I think it like creates way more um division in a place that's nowhere near the, the, the what's actually happening. But then again, like I was like, well, it's not affecting me. Like you guys are there. I, I wanted to know whether or not it actually, you think it helps. So I think- I, Can I just want to re re go, go for it. respond to Hannah? Sorry, I, I don't know if we're allowed to disagree in front of you here. <laughs> um, but, you know, apartheid in South Africa, a lot of people think apartheid in South Africa ended because of the boycotts. And whilst that certainly played a role, a bigger role that ended apartheid in South Africa is a the end of the Cold War, which affected a lot of things around the world and various alliances, and B was the relationship between de Klerk and Mandela, and the fact that you know when Mandela came out from prison, he was an incredible leader that didn't seek revenge against the whites, which he could have been very justified to want to seek, and instead wanted to be a, a leader for all of South Africa and talked about a rainbow nation and wore the Springbok jersey and and led his people to a very different future from its past. And it's not to say that South Africa's perfect today. We've spoken about South Africa in another episode, but I'll say internally um, there were there were things happened in between South Africans that they chose to end apartheid. And I think um, I think whilst you know external boycotts can play a role in that, ultimately the change there came from the people. Same thing in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland didn't end because someone you know boycotted the Protestants or the Catholics. It ended because 
they said halas like enough after all of the bombings uh you know and bloody sunday and everything that happened in belfast they said we don't want to do this anymore we don't want to kill each other anymore because ultimately they had to end it themselves so yes people outside the country have a role in doing that and i think anything that encourages israelis and palestinians to end this war in this case you know free the hostages and stop bombing gaza but more broadly the the entire you know horrific reality that exists between the river and the sea i think people outside should do that but i think that the best way to do that is to empower israelis and palestinians that want to end that themselves mm. i think when it comes when it comes to boycotting um just because we talked about resistance and stuff i think boycotting is a effective way and legitimate tool of resistance uh i'm not against boycotting i think it's like i said it's a meaningful means of resistance um and effective um and i, I think it's important to highlight the, that there are types of boycotting that you can boycott uh, institutions and initiatives that fund military that fund arms that yeah. uh, support the country you can boycott organizations and institutions that for example sell products in in illegal settlements in the west bank you can boycott and then there's the cultural boycott that where you boycott everything that is israeli and i think that's where the mix of everything that is israeli and everything that is uh jewish like there there's there's the mix because it is the only jewish state and when i say everything that is it is israeli that kind of sometimes splits into the culture like Israeli music, Israeli art, Israeli anything, and well, like Ibrahim said, the, the dialogue part, the dialogue aspect. So when it comes when it comes to me, I'm completely on 100% against settlements. Anything that has to do with settlements or supports like settlement uh, growth uh, or maintenance of, of the settlements, I I would personally I would personally boycott. I would never force someone to to boycott the same way you can't tell someone to to force someone to buy something. You can't force someone to not buy something. it's just not how it's not how it works that's my problem with uh, with uh, with the boycott movement um is that it's always by force and then going back to choices what do we what do we want what is the boycott doing what what's our end goal i think each and every yeah. movement institution uh has to ask themselves and the people that support it has to have to ask themselves what are we doing what's our end goal i'm boycotting why am i boycotting and what is this doing to the people on the ground i want to ask you a question about zionism if that's okay um and it's something that i've been thinking about a lot recently and i kind of asked itai this when we were one of our hundredths chat for the week this week um but the thing that i have seen lately in terms of criticism about the zionist movement is liberal zionism and people saying like you know before this war a liberal zionist was someone who said you know yes end the occupation um we believe in palestinian rights um sometimes it's we believe in a two state solution and a lot of the pro palestinian movement especially in australia i'm seeing this criticism of liberal zionists are just as bad as the you know hardcore zionists like if you care about palestinian rights uh you should be compl- you, you shouldn't be a zionist you should be anti-zionist which means there shouldn't be a jewish nation state in in the land of israel um and ibrahim you you kind of touched on that before about when when you were talking about resistance like there are some people who think it's a it's a one state solution and it's a palestinian state so i want to know what you think about 
um, a like Zionism in general and two whether you have an issue with liberal Zionism and whether you would maybe identify as like a liberal Palestinian because you I don't know whether from what I gather from the podcast like you don't think that all the Jews or all the Israelis should leave Um, and that might be a liberal Palestinian view I'm not sure Interesting. I never thought of the term. I think that liberal Palestinian term actually is, uh, it's much more socially and culturally. When I hear the term liberal Palestinian, for me, it has nothing to do with the political stance of the person. It has to do with his uh, social perspective on, you know, how a Palestinian life should be more conservative, conservative or less. Uh, it's actually something we mean. I mean, I touched upon before and I told her, uh, you know, that there is a different scale, I think, for what is a Palestinian right and a Palestinian left. Because I think uh, that puts, I guess, I, I can talk on myself, that puts me a bit more on the Palestinian left. I think the more right you are, the more it's very nationalist perspective, and it becomes one-sided perspective more. And the more left you are, it gives a little bit of a broader perspective to you know, not that nationalist, that you're willing to also compromise in a way on nationalistic things. So like the Palestinian who's pro-two-state mm. solution would be more on the left than someone who sees, you know, one uh, one state solution, I guess. And there are people obviously who are like on the scale between the two narratives. So that's on that, I think. It's just an interesting term. But on Zionism, I will let Amira start talking on Zionism. <laughs> <laughs> you want to put me on the spot? I know that Amira puts it very elo- eloquently. No, it's it's okay. So every time I, I answer this question, I again go back to uh, what my narrative is and what the narrative that and what my experience is. Um, so my the my entire my entire life in 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 East Jerusalem uh, has been in this East Jerusalem bubble whether that's the education system, whether that's that, that I've been in, whether that is crossing checkpoints, uh, whether that's house demolitions, all of that I was because of Zionism. That is my narrative, is that the situation that I'm in, the borders, the situation in Gaza, everything that's happening, everything that my family has lost, everything that is all, that's the narrative, that it is a, a, a result of the Jewish aspiration of self-determination in the land of Israel, in, in, the, in the Jewish homeland. And uh, my suffering was a byproduct. So that's how I see Zionism. That's how, that's how when I hear the word Zionism, I kind of feel like a, like a, a, twist in, a twist in my guts because it reminds me of trauma. It reminds me of suffering. And I, uh, it took me a long time to, to, to get to actually sit down and talk and understand what is Zionism and what do other people think Zionism is, while truly understanding that that like this conversation won't undermine what I believe in and what I went through. The contrary, it will more it will it will raise awareness to 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 it. Uh, now I don't know what I don't have a definition of liberal liberal Zionism. I can only tell you what I what I have gone through and what I've seen. Like I've seen liberal Zionists that have kind of show it in a way I'm a liberal Zionist. I wanna like something that has to do with uh, women on uh, like in, 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 in the Temple Mount or women, like it has to do with religion. 
It has to do with that. Like Zionism is set. It's the same thing, but it has to do with what, with where, with where a woman, where a woman is and the role of, of a woman, uh, progressive synagogues where women are, are rabbis and they lead prayer. Mm. Like there, there's all of this where I hear that that's the definition of liberal Zionism. And then there's a the definition that you said, which liberal Zionism kind of more touches upon the um, self-determination for the Jewish people, which also means self-determination for all, which also means self-determination for the Palestinian people, AKA kind of a two-state solution situation. Yeah, um, yeah. So I don't know if I answered your question, but- um, So that's, that's like, that's more of, yeah, that's that's the term that's being used now. Like a liberal Zionist is just as bad as a Zionist because they don't, because they still recognize or they still are fighting for a Jewish homeland uh, in Israel. And I guess the question is, like, do you do you support liberal Zionists or uh, and you can be honest, like, I, I think I'm just what what I'm like struggling with at the moment is listening to the far left in Australia, like Ibrahim, when you're talking about like you're a left um, you're more on the left. Like when I think about the left in Australia, the le- the far, far left is like really hectic at times. And they are basically saying like, you know, every Jew get the fuck out of Israel. Like this is not your home. You're not indigenous. Like that's, that's the left that I'm kind of seeing. And, um, again, like I, I'm more open to hearing from Palestinians in Israel as to what they think the solution is. Like, I don't really care what Australians think the solution is. Like I'm doing this podcast and it's, you know, to our Australian audience, but the more and more I've done this, I'm like, it should not be, I just shouldn't have a say. Like I'm not living there. I'm not going to come and live there. It is up to you. And, and so I want to know from two Palestinians living there, like, what do you want to see there? Like, do you agree with liberal Zionists who say both of us should be living here? And, and maybe, can I just add, just before you answer about liberal Zionists, just to broaden it a little bit more, like, you know, we often talk about, you know, in the peace building field about, we use black words like peace or end the conflict or change the narrative, you know, there's all these buzzwords that we use. But if you, when you like imagine, let's say five, 10, 20 years from now, when there is you know the reality you want to see what does it look like i'm not asking what does it look like two state one state confederation i'm not interested in a political level i mean what does it mean for you personally to end the conflict like what does how does it change your life and what does your life look like when we're not in the reality we're in today so just to to answer um I'm going to take the, the the floor here just to continue my thought. And then Ibrahim, it's all yours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so just to answer first what Hannah said, um, everything that you said about the the left, the radical left in, in, in Australia, not an Australian, but what I would say as a Palestinian, as again, it is the voice of our ancestors. It's the voice of our grandparents. Of, this is our land. And the Jews came and take it away, took it away from us. And since that day, uh, we have seen all consequences because all consequences because of um, Jewish right of self determination. That's that's the narrative. That's that's the belief and the ha- kind of of and just to touch upon what Itai said about what we see the future is for me. Future is not to get into a lot of buzzwords, but it has to do a lot with justice for me. It has a lot to do with equality. It has a lot to do with um, 
um, give the people uh, dignity and the right to live uh, as as human beings, the basic the basic rights, which aren't given to us bankers, which aren't given to East Jerusalemites and to Gazans. Um, give that give them what they deserve, regardless of what that looks like: two state, one state, confederation, whatever. Um, but give them like let them live decently, let them focus on their future instead of actually just trying to to survive the present. Uh, that's how I see how I see the future. Like I see no more demolitions. I see um, I see a, a, a flourishing Palestinian society, economy, high tech. Uh, like look at the map. This place is so small. The the high tech the high tech hub is in Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is so like just look at it in a, on a map and see how close it is to the West Bank geographically speaking. Like why can't why can't Ramallah be like the the, the high tech hub of Palestine? Why can't it why can like why can't Hebron be like the uh, the flourishing part of the economy of, of Palestine, which it is, but it can be even stronger. So th that's that's what I see, and there has to be a, a focus a focus on that in order for us to like for Palestinians in order to sit and say two state solution. We see that as a compromise that we that we are willing to give half of our homeland, half of our rights, half of this up until this day. That's why it's so difficult. That's why the narrative is I'm Palestinian. I want to go back and live in Palestine in Haifa. That's where Palestine is to me. Like it's not like right now we see a division on the map of Palestine is the is, is the West Bank, East Jerusalem and, and the Gaza Strip. But there we forget that there are people that are Palestinians that have gone through the Nakba, uh, the Palestinian catastrophe um, from what is known now to be Israel proper. So they and they're they're in the diaspora or they're re refugees or they're from Gaza, but they were or they were refu they're refugees yeah, in Gaza yeah. from people from places that are now called Israel. So that's where the language is coming from. They want their Palestine. They're talking in the language of their ancestors and we should respect that completely. They deserve uh, justice. And that's where it's coming from. So when they say all the Jews go out, they, what I would assume is that they mean, I want to go back where I'm from. I want to go back to what I know, what my parents know, what they suffered, where they were kicked out of. I a bit agree and disagree, <laughs> Amira. Just because oh, okay. uh, looking at the far left in a lot of these countries, we're not just looking at Palestinians. Palestinians are not the only ones who are sitting in these far lefts. But it's people who are from these countries who are saying that we need to, um, they're listening to the story, but they're listening to only one-sided story and that they choose that this is the narrative that needs to be brought forward because they're not the owners of the narrative, but they chose to only listen to one narrative and accept only one way. And that way is one that leads to more uh, violence and more war. Uh, you know, saying these people need to go to their ancestral uh, place means that these people need to fight to go to that that place the question is are they doing the fight or are we expecting mm. others to do the fight if i'm talking in the language of the my ancestral uh, my grandparents and talking about fighting uh means that i'm and the same time and this honestly we only we don't only see it out there right we see it even here uh some of the palestinian israeli citizens Talk about violent mm. resistance, a small number, but they, they exist or the, the, they see themselves anti the state, but they don't pick up the arms. They are telling the Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank to do the fighting. And that part, that part actually really frustrates me. 
is that we always talk about and the people who are talking about these uh, the, you know the, the, the you need to uh, go back to your land and how it needs to to happen with a war it's not going to be a diplomatic solution where the jewish people say okay we got it we're going to we understand finally what you mean by going back to your ancestral uh, that it's your land and not ours we just had an epiphany and we're going back to europe and the rest of the middle east that is not going to happen you're calling for a war. And are you fighting in that war? Or are you telling only certain Palestinians that they need to do fighting in that war? That's my biggest problem with that. And for me, the, the discussion or the voice that I'm looking forward to is that how can we secure a future for my children where they um, can have rights, can have self-determination and i personally i'm not a big fan of the word justice actually i'm, I'm completely the opposite because the word the world is not just and it's just what it is the world is, is a difficult place what we what we need to strive to do is get the most out of it the most for my people as much as possible for my people will it be the full justice i think the part of the problem is that we're feeding our people that the word justice and then it becomes personal interpretation because for some people, justice is going back to the whole land. Justice doesn't exist. What we need is to get the best for our people mm. and for the future of our people. What is the next generation of a Palestinian children will live in? In what reality will they live in? It, it might not be the just reality that you envision, but it will be a just reality that they will um, at least have a dignified life, self-determined state, is it the full state that you envisioned in 48? No, but it's a state where they have their own self-determination, where they have live in their own dignified life, where they prosper a Palestinian society that you also as a Palestinian from the diaspora can contribute to, that we can expand the, uh, um, a better uh, future between Palestinians and Israelis and people can you know, the, the Jewish people also need to accept that they cannot, they will not go back to um, uh, Hebron, uh, 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 to the full Hebron as they envisioned it back then. And definitely not to Nablus, that it's one of the biggest Palestinian cities. But in a better future, you can visit a place where you have also ties to and have a better future where people are able to enjoy at least parts and, and ways of, of of touching on this land that is sacred to all of these people. That's my uh, uh, aspiration for the future, is a place where we can all have the... the, the uh, because the two people want self-determination and they should have it. And that's why I personally today don't have a problem with the terms of, of, of liberal Jews, or I think it's also a very, you know, um, absurd thing to ask from an Israeli born in Israel to tell him he needs to be anti-Zionist because, you know, he's born to the reality where there is a state. So how is he going to say, okay, I need to pack up my bags for someone else? That's the reality he knows, that that's his home. Also the same way that a Palestinian is born to the reality that this is where he lives as well. And to tell them, so I cannot expect from the other side, from an Israeli, to also say, you know, I'm not going to be looking for the, the Jewish people who are looking to uproot the, the entire Jewish people, and that will be my partners. No. Also, the truth of the matter is that the, the vast, vast, vast majority of Israelis are Zionists. But what I will be looking for within that community, Zionists who are also looking at shared future. 
We might not also, like Amira always says, we might not agree even with them on the past, but at least we can agree with them on a, on, on a different future. Uh, the, the history itself is, is, is going to be, each is going to look at it from his own voice, from his own narrative, like we say, from how our grandparents saw. But we can together form a, a partnership for agreement on a better future for Israelis and Palestinians. And, and the whole issue of which land and which border, is it 67, not 67? I think it's a redundant discussion. I think it's a discussion that prevents us from reaching the solution. Because the, the, the people are looking at the land before the people. If, if there are no Palestinians and Israelis on this land, it will be called some, something else. It will not be called Israel or Palestine, by the way. So it's about the people first. And what we need to look for is, is prospering the people before the land. And losing, quote unquote, part of the land is not losing. It's gaining your children's future. And this is what hopefully the way and the vision that our people, both our people, can look at in the future. And I think we are at a crossroads. You know, we've gone through the first phase of that war, detrimental war we're at, the, 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 the feeling also of vengeance uh, from the Israeli side. The question is, where do we stir the, the, the ship from here? Where do we take both, both people? Uh, is it going to be to a point of, yes, violence is the only solution that will continue to be the case? Or to realize that violence is only leading us to more and more devastation? And it's about time we say, khalas, enough. Just like in other places in the world. And I don't want to be to reach Belfast so we can understand that. We've reached close. We do not need half of the Israelis and the Palestinians to die brutally before we say that's enough. Let's say it now. That's my biggest issue. Just have to comment that I agree I mean, with everything that you're saying. <laughs> I just want to highlight. I just want to highlight because you disagreed on my on the word justice. Uh, and I respect that. And I don't like the word, however, because it kind of. But and and we're speaking while sitting in an extremely privileged place, relatively privileged place when it comes to Palestinians. You saying that there's no such thing as justice, and that there's no such thing, and that sacrificing, quote unquote, sacrificing part of the land is securing my future's children. You're not sacrificing. I'm not sacrificing anything. We are Israeli citizens. Do you get what I'm saying? So when someone who's a Palestinian that is from Gaza, that's from the West Bank, that's a refugee from the diaspora that has been, that yearns for the Olive Garden of his grandparents is gonna like, won't take you seriously. It's like, who are you to tell me this? Who are you to, to, to tell me that? You live in the same, your aunts, you can visit everywhere. You can see your, your, yes, you, you suffered. I don't want to, I don't want to undermine your grandparents suffering at all, but it's a spectrum. And unfortunately, this spectrum is used to divide us as Palestinians of I suffered more and you suffered less. That means I'm a more Palestinian than you. Just to say that there's nothing, that the world isn't fair. Just take the short end of the stick and do whatever you can with it. No, when I, when I say justice, this is the part that I like, want to start. When I say justice is exactly what you defined, is justice for the refugees, which doesn't mean them returning, but means them living a dignifying life. That's the same, the same life as us inside of Israel, the same life as someone in the States, the same life, like a, a good, like a good, like a well-income, good education. This is what I mean for the refugees, for the people of Gaza, for the people inside of Israel, East Jerusalem and West Bank. That's like just to highlight and stress on that. Mm. 
So interesting. I think you're talking about like absolute justice versus justice, like or, or absolute justice versus equality. Like what you're saying, Ibrahim, and I think Amira, is that you want your you want to see Palestinian people having the same rights as Israelis and the people in Gaza having the same rights as, you know, Palestinian Israelis or even more than that, because Palestinian Israelis, like we've spoken about in our episodes, like you guys are citizens, maybe, but there's still a lot of disadvantages that you or, you know, inequality that you suffer. But I see there being like, I think this is so interesting. And thank you so much for both of your perspectives, because it's so interesting, this discussion between equality, having equal rights and absolute justice, which would involve, like Ibrahim said, like, yeah, if you want absolute justice, then you want the Jews to suffer as the Palestinians have suffered now. Like, that's what absolute justice is. It's like, we want to go back to what it was before 1948. That would be absolute justice. And that means everyone get the fuck out, which is, you know, what the far left is basically saying. Yeah, no, I just look, I'm an Israeli on the left. Um, but I just want to speak like an Israeli on the right for the moment because I want that voice to be here as well. So a lot of Israelis on the right would say for them, justice is returning to their ancestral homeland in Yehudavashamon in the West Bank, which includes Hebron and Gushetzion and Tekoa and like all of those settlements because they would say biblically. That was once our homeland and then we have a right to be in all of the land that Hashem promised to the Jewish people because the animating factor of Zionism, definitely religious Zionism, is a biblical promise to the Jewish people that the promised land would be theirs. And so for for many Jews on the right, they would say that any sort of compromise over any inch of a territory within Yehudavashamon, within the West Bank, would be a huge um, sort of injustice to the historic Jewish connection because you're saying that territory promised by God is, is given to another people. And this includes, by the way, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which is obviously Al-Aqsa, and there's going to be no Palestinian state without Al-Aqsa. Like everyone knows that. But that's something that many, many Jews, especially religious Jews, could never compromise on because Jews are also stuck in that notion of of divine justice and there's only one Jewish state in the world and we should have a right to be sovereign here. And and often when I speak to to Jews on the right, because I hear that argument all the time and I mix in those circles, I often go back to the Israeli anthem, you know, which the last four words are Liotam Chofshi Beltzeno, which is to be a free people in our nation. And I always sort of really focus on the word Chofshi, on the word free. What does it mean to be free? And, and Jews say, well, to be free, some right-wing Jews will say, to be free, I can live on every hilltop in the West Bank, and some even want to resettle Gaza now as well, which I think is crazy. But, like, that's a dominant part of the Israeli discourse and definitely of this current government. And I always say the word we should be aspiring to is freedom. But then for me, freedom is the notion, as David Grossman says, if I want to have a home here, Palestinians have to have a home here. Like, I will never have freedom, the freedom that I want and that I deserve and that, you know, is my is my right as a human being and as a Jew. I'm never going to have that freedom at the expense of someone else. And I think it's for me within the within Jewish Israeli discourse, I often just want to redefine what that word freedom means and to say it doesn't need to come at the expense of someone else. It can come, um, you know, it, it can be a win win solution. It doesn't have to be a win lose solution. And I think so much of 
of the discourse, especially now in the war, is that it's it's us or them, you know, it's kill or be killed. And and I think it all comes to how you understand the word Khofshi freedom and and I'm glad that that word is is in our anthem and I and I just hope that one day we'll find a way to interpret that notion of of freedom being something that is universal that if, if it's something that Jews have a right to have then it's something that all people should have a right to have especially Palestinians that have such a long and historic connection to this land so I do want to comment on, on that really quick uh, that on how uh, on the right on the on the Israeli right I'm not so sure I agree on the how many uh, Jewish people from the right actually are looking to go back to the Yehuda Shamron? I think the, the 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 percentage in the Israeli public is is under the twenty percent uh, people who are actually you know effectively looking to go back to 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 uh, bring back Temple Mount or to pray in Al Aqsa or to physically go to the West Bank and and to and to uh, expand settlements even more or to to kick out the Palestinians. I think that the in in my analysis of what the Israeli right is, this is a small fraction of it that is expanding and getting bigger. But the bigger part portion of the Israeli right is a portion that has distrust with the Palestinians. I think that's the main aspect. Is because even people on the right are not uh, all of them are religiously on the right. A lot of the Israeli right is also very political. And very security minded, like the Israeli politics. Where you know there have we have never had a party that won because it talked about the economy and the economic situation. Unfortunately, the only thing that the Israeli public focuses on mm. is security, and and it's not without a reason. And that's why every politics, every, even the right and left in Israel, is portrayed in a way of uh, security and. Uh, you know, whether or not you're giving a, a state to the Palestinians is not, I, th- I look at it sometimes more of, they cannot be trusted, so I cannot do that, rather than, oh, we need to expand more and more. Because there's a lot of people in Israel now looking at the settlements being a major part of the, the failure of October of the IDF's response to October 7th, having the majority of the army in the West Bank, protecting the settlements and and you know these especially these uh, settlements that are like so outskirted in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of people who just want to expand even more and more of the land, rather than also protecting people who are living in proper Israel on the Gaza border. So there, I think there's a there's a huge attention to that, and I uh, again we're in a crossroads. I feel. And it's it's a question of where we take this ship forward. It's whether the, the Israeli public will look at the the, the settlements and that uh, perspective of the Israeli politics as part of why we got here, or this is the only way forward, and we need to continue with the security is is military only. And I'm going to be optimistic. I, I, I do believe that there is a, a voice that can be stronger than these voices. The only problem is that these voices are always the loudest. They do not necessarily need to be the, 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 yeah. the majority. We saw it like there is a, a, an attempt to create distrust as much as possible all the time, I feel. Like even when we look at May 2021, when we had um, uh, Guardians of the Wall in, in the Israeli terms, or you know, I call it the Israeli uh, internal clashes between uh, Palestinian Israelis and Jewish Israelis inside Israel. 
And there was a notion that the entire Arab community is anti-Israeli and that they're going against the Jews and all our uh, protests were violent and we use violence. And that notion exists till today within the Jewish public. If you talk to them about May 21, they will talk about how violent we were. But if you look statistically at the protests, the, the number of protests who were violent, were uh, the, 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 the violent protests were under 10%. But you're highlighted the most radical, loudest, most violent voices, and then they become a portrayal of the uh, of the majority. And hopefully, we can push for a change in government, and then maybe we'll see some something different. I'll stay optimistic. <laughs> no, and you should. You should. I think it's uh that's that's the the voice that should lead the optimistic voice. Like, uh, because if we're going to be pessimistic, if we're going to think that ah oh, this place is going to burn and we're going to burn with it. Because like they like we we need this voice. We need the voice of optimism. We need the voice of we like we're not gonna like even even in the the state of it being like let's be completely realistic. The most optimism right now kind of sounds like you're being you're being delusional. However, let's say that that's correct theoretically. Let's say that we're all doomed. Are we gonna sit in a corner and cry? Or are we gonna try to do something? We have to be optimistic. We have to try and change things or, yeah. or else nothing is going to change. Since we're 100% doomed, that means it's all, uh, all hands on deck. It's delusional together. Yeah. So we need optimism. I always say I'm a realist, yeah. but I'm optimist. Like, I, I, I know the situation is really yeah. fucked up. <laughs> but I'll do my best to change it. Yeah. Um, but I think that's such episode, a perfect yeah. way to end this episode on like a really optimistic, realist, but optimistic note. Um, thank you so much for your time. I could keep talking to you for ages and I'm going to maybe WhatsApp you some other questions that I have. We we love you guys. And I really hope that our Thanks listeners, after hearing you go and listen to Unapologetic, the third narrative, um, go back and listen to all of their episodes Ibrahim and Amira you're so wise you're so empathetic and I'm just yeah I'm really so so grateful for your time thank you and the and Australians are the number four uh, most listened country on our there you podcast go. so who knows maybe you'll soon be having a tour to Sydney maybe uh, you'll be speaking at a peace vigil there one day it's got a nice bridge you should you should get there yeah we would love to yeah and if you come you should come to melbourne and if any of our listeners have any feedback or comments or just want to hate (laughs) on us um you can always email us at from the yara at gmail.com or you can find us on instagram at from the yara and we'd love to to hear any questions comments concerns um ideas hope poetry recipes anything you know be in touch with us we'd write back to all the emails and we really appreciate everyone being part of our community i know for some people this conversation will be very difficult to hear so if you're still with us at this point of the podcast uh and wishing everyone a safe and peaceful week